The Gita is the essence. It's really the essence of all of the all of the scriptures, all of the other teachings. And while you can spend years and decades studying not just the whole Gita, you could spend years or decades studying a chapter of the Gita. Seriously, a mantra of the Gita. In a way, because it's the essence, it's something where, on the one hand, there's never enough time. Whether you devote months or years or decades, you're still going to come up short because it's so deep and so rich that you're still going to feel like, ah, oh, I didn't, didn't quite squeeze that you know, towel for all the juice that was in it. If I had just squeezed a little harder, I would have gotten some more juice. But also, on the other hand, it's not esoteric teaching. It's not the type of teaching that you have to have a lot of prerequisites in order to understand. The Gita is something that you can walk into the study of without prerequisites, with simply the understanding of five or six or ten Sanskrit words. you can embark on the Gita. So, and it changes us, and it changes people of every religion, of every culture. It has nothing to do with just a scripture for Hindus or a scripture for the battleground of Kurukshetra. It's for us. And so what I'll do today is just try to share some some drops of that essence, some drops of that nectar to allow to just percolate within you and see what, what grows and what, what evolves within you because they really are drops of divine nectar. First of all, as I was just saying, it's really important to remember that this battlefield is the stage for the teaching. But that doesn't mean that that's the place only where the teaching applies. For many of us, it's very simple to say, well, you know, that's just, that's not my reality. Like, that, those aren't the problems I'm facing. Therefore, maybe the teachings aren't as pertinent. Or I don't, think of God in the form of Krishna. So therefore, those teachings aren't applicable. And before you even begin talking about the Gita, it's important to remember that that battleground is the battleground within ourselves. This is, this is the battleground within us between, in oversimplified terms, the good guys and the bad guys, in somewhat less simplified terms, our drive for our passions, our ego, our desires, the durya done within us that says it's never enough. 
whatever I'm getting from you, it's not enough. Because, of course, the hole I'm trying to fill is not a hole that has anything to do with how much land is in my kingdom. Yeah, it's the hole in the heart. And so it doesn't matter how much I steal from you or wrest from your hands or earn or get or acquire. It's never enough. It's also the aspect within us that's the ego, that's identified with what I have, that's identified with I want to be the king. I want to be number one. Why am I not the one with the corner office? Why am I not the one who's the highest or the best or the most sought after? I should have all of that. And that's prepared to really do or say anything to get that. So it's a, a battle within us between that instinct within us and the instinct within us that's, that's the opposite. That's the, the instinct that says, forget it. Peace is the most important. Love is the most important. Family is the most important. Who cares? Who cares about the land? Who cares about the kingdom? Forget it. But yet, whose actual duty is to restore dharma. And this cuts through a really important aspect of the Gita that comes up so frequently with so many people, particularly those of us from the West, which is, well, if the very first yama of the eight limbs of yoga, if the very foundation of yoga is ahimsa, nonviolence, how is it then that we end up with this scripture of yoga that seems to be saying, fight, fight, fight? Where's, where's this dichotomy meet? And what does it mean? And this is where it's so crucial to remember that this is not a scripture about fighting. It's not a scripture about slaughtering your enemies. It's not a scripture about waging war for that which is your due, whether it's land, whether it's title, whether it's kingdom, whether it's the honor of your wife. But it's a teaching on doing your duty, which sometimes isn't fun. Most of us don't necessarily face that type of battlefield. We don't necessarily find ourselves on a horse-drawn chariot facing our family members across battle lines with bows and arrows. But we do find ourselves sometimes face-to-face -face with literal, material, physical, as well as symbolic and metaphoric aspects of ourselves, of our culture, of our family. 
that are not what we know to be the highest truth. And face to face with them. And because it's not easy, because we're literally facing down the self or the shadow self or however we want to describe it, it's a lot easier to think, well, forget it. I'm a yogi now. I'm just going to, I'll just meditate. I'll just do my yoga. I'm going to just find peace with this. And on a slight but pertinent digression, there have been so many people, for example, in the wake of what's going on in America who have come up with questions about things like, how can I find peace with this? And as a yogi, our highest goal is not always about how can I find peace with whatever is happening outside. Sometimes our highest goal is how can I find an inner peace within me so that I'm not reacting, so that I'm not blind with rage, so that I'm not in sympathetic nervous system overload where I can't possibly think properly, but where I am acting to restore dharma to adharma, to bring back righteousness to unrighteousness. And this is what Lord Krishna teaches in the Gita to Arjun, is not so fast. Your highest goal here is not about letting them have it all and going into the mountains and finding peace with the fact that you've lost your kingdom. Your highest goal is to be balanced, anchored, grounded in yoga and to restore the Dharma to fight the battle, to do the action. And that's really important because when we start to experience the peace that we feel in yoga, it in and of itself starts to draw us. And there's things in the world that don't feel so peaceful. And our instinct can be, well, I'm just going to go back to that which makes me feel peaceful. In our pre-yoga days, it may have been alcohol or drugs or gambling or chocolate cake after chocolate cake. In our yoga days, now it's my, my practice. But remember that that practice is a means to an end. It is the means to purify the self. In the Gita, Krishna explains that yoga is that which purifies the self. He doesn't say yoga is that which brings God. Yoga is that which enlightens you. Yoga is that which purifies the self so that you can live in the light, which is the truth of who you are, 
and fulfill your duty without all of the things he cautions us against. Attachment to the fruits of my labor, passion, desires, ego. But he reminds us over and over again that the solution is not in not acting. The solution is not in withdrawal from action. Rather, the solution is grounding and anchoring yourself in yoga, in that union, not just as we always say, the union of our nose to our knees or our fingers to our toes, but that, that real union of the self with the divine, however you conceive of it, it doesn't matter. Whatever that supreme, whole, infinite universe is, your connection with that, grounding yourself in that, anchoring yourself in that, in the Dharma, engaging in action. So let's, let's take just a few, a few drops, additional drops. One of, my, one of my favorite teachings in the Gita is a line where he says, yoga is the cessation of the union with pain. Now, it's really interesting because we usually think over and over again, yoga is the union of this. Yoga is the union of that. Yoga is union of this. But here we're being told, the opposite. Yoga is actually breaking the union with pain. And what that makes us so acutely aware of is how literally attached we are, united we are with our pain. Whether it's our stories Our dramas, we all love our dramas. Because they're exciting. That pain is exciting. One of the things that worries people about a spiritual path, as ironic as it is, is but it, my life is going to become boring. I mean, what would I do? If I didn't spend my life going up and down, what would I do? What would I think about if it wasn't always fighting and making up with my boyfriend or girlfriend or my spouse? I mean, if we just could peacefully and lovingly coexist, well, God, that would be really boring. I mean, what would we do? What would we talk about? What would we have to make up from? Where would the passion come from? <laughs> but yoga is the cessation of that union with pain. So it's a surrendering in a way of the attachment to drama. Now, we're still on a stage of life. This whole 
existence is referred to as lila, which literally is, is translated not so perfectly, but you get that all the time when you do Sanskrit to English translations. It's never perfect. But the, the best definition is usually something like the divine play or the divine drama. So this whole thing is a lila. We still have to play our role. That's the teaching, do your duty. And Krishna is very clear about it. You are not the killer. Just as you are not the giver of life. It's one of those really, and who exactly are you to think that you're the one who's doing all this? Like, really? You're going to kill them? The life that I, Krishna, God, have given. You've got the power to take that away? Who do you think you are? It's really one of those. Get off your get off your high horse. Don't think of yourself like that. You're not the doer. You're a tool. You're 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 playing your role in this drama. The best you can do is be a good tool. The best you can do is empty yourself so that my will flows through you. You're not running the show. But we all think we are. And so we find ourselves in this trouble, like Arjun found himself in. I mean, the Gita opens. You've been doing this for days now, right? So the Gita we know opens with the physiological response that Arjun is having. It is the stress response. His hair is standing on end. He's, he's quivering. He can't think clearly. Well, anybody ever been in that situation when you're trying to make a decision? We know what that feels like. It's the, it's up to me, I'm the doer. Decision panic. And Krishna comes in and says, stop. You're not, you're not running the show here. But you have a crucial role to play. I have given you this role. Your duty is to play this role. You are the restorer of dharma. You are a warrior. You are a king. Your dharma is to be king. Now, as it happens, in order to be king, you have to remove these obstacles to you being king, which is your evil cousins who are blinded by their ego, blinded by their greed, literally blinded, the sons of the blind one. Remember, nothing's in there for no reason. It all has a purpose. The sons of the blind one and the one who voluntarily blinded herself. So they're, they're the lineage of the blind. 
as we get blinded by our egos, blinded by our desires, blinded by our attachments. So in order to do your dharma, which is to be king, which is to restore dharma, you have to remove them. If we came down with a horrible infection, even those of us who are adamantly opposed to chemical medicine, those of us who are deeply attached to natural sources, nonetheless, if you came down with a, a horrible infection that was ravaging your body and the doctor said, you need antibiotics or this thing's going to take your life in 24 hours, very few of us would be so attached to not taking the antibiotics that we'd actually say, okay, no problem. I surrender my body to these bacteria. We take the antibiotics. Well, they've got a life. I mean, we commit ourselves to ahimsa. If you've ever taken an antibiotic, you've wiped, you've committed, committed genocide of sorts. Anybody ever given antibiotics to a kid with strep throat? Well, we've just wiped out an entire population based on the type of bacteria they are. But we do it because what we know is I have a dharma to fulfill. I have a duty to fulfill. In order to fulfill it, I have to stay alive. Literally. In order to stay alive and therefore fulfill my duty, this army of bacteria needs to be removed. And whether I'm going to remove them via antibiotics or whether I've got some time and I'm going to do it with grapefruit seed extract and echinacea, either way, I'm removing those bacteria. Because I know there's a higher goal. Not because I'm a vengeful person, but because I know I've got a duty here to fulfill. And in order to fulfill that, I've got to stay in the body. So yoga is letting go of the attachment to the pain that our drama creates. And the pain that our ignorance creates. The ignorance or the darkness, you when we, when we talk about a guru, a guru is the one who removes the darkness and brings light. There's a lot, a lot of references in the Indian spiritual tradition to light and darkness. Lots of them. And the darkness is always the darkness of ignorance. The core spiritual teaching is at the core of who you are is light is divine, is pure, is perfect. It's in many ways the opposite from the teaching of the Judeo-Christian tradition, which has to do with the core being sinful and things that we can do to save ourselves or absolve ourselves of that sinful nature. Here it's the opposite. Here it says the core of who you are is pure and perfect. But due to ignorance, you identify with this body. In your identification with the body, you experience pain, 
anger, jealousy. I mean, these are painful things. Anger doesn't feel good. Jealousy doesn't feel good. Competition doesn't feel good. Ego doesn't feel good. So we experience the pain. We then act based on that. So I'm angry. I therefore say something horrible or do something horrible. And I then suffer the repercussions of that, what we would call bad karma, which simply has to do with the seed I've planted bearing fruit, which happens to be in my front yard. It's not that I've been punished because I'm sinful. It's that I was ignorant. That ignorance led to pain. That pain led to me to engage in certain actions, and those actions had consequences. Not because God is up there as a rewarder or punisher. It's not like Santa Claus with a list of you've been good or you've been bad. It's just whatever seeds you plant, that's what you reap. So when we connect in yoga, in order to unite in yoga, in order to unite with the divine, I have to disconnect from my attachment over here. I can't simultaneously be connected in two different places. So in order to unite with the truth, I have to ununite from the pain, from the ignorance. So yoga brings us out of that. Another beautiful drop is a passage where he's talking about the ocean and how into the ocean so many rivers and streams flow. But you don't see the ocean going up and down with the rivers. The rivers don't have any impact on the high or the low tide of the ocean. That all has to do with the moon and gravity. So whatever's entering the river, I mean, sorry, whatever's entering the ocean, whatever rivers, whatever streams, the ocean stays constant. And the teaching is that in our lives, yeah, we're human. We're yogis, but we're yogis in a human experience, in a human body. And it's not about how can I stop these rivers and these streams of my desires or of my human experience or of the world around me. But how can I be like the ocean that no matter what flows in, I'm constant? Most of us, we go up and down, literally. You know, Pooja Swamiji always talks about we're, we're like light bulbs, that people come in and they flip us on and flip us off, and we're on and off and on and on. Someone says something nice, we're on. They don't say something nice, we're off. But how we need to be like the ocean. Let the rivers enter. Let the streams enter. Yoga, remember, is union. So in that union, it's not about how much of myself can I push away. 
or repress or suppress. It's not about that. It's about awareness of these rivers, of the streams, of the flow of my human existence. But that it doesn't shake me. A good, a good way to think about it is you think, well, so I've got this glass of water here. And if I took a rock and threw it in the glass of water, what would happen? Splash all over the place. But if I took that same rock and I dumped it in my bathtub, a full bathtub, what would happen? It would sink. It would make a little splash, a little bit, but not too much. Chances are it wouldn't flood my bathroom floor. And if I took the same rock and I dropped it in the ocean, what would happen? Very little. And so the teaching is not about how can I remove these rocks from my life. Many of us have had the experience of, you know, I'm so peaceful, I'm so joyful, I'm so connected, so for God's sakes, just please don't come near me. Right? It's like, just don't talk to me right now because I'm really peaceful. And that's, that's the equivalent of basically saying, my container of peace is so small that your rock is going to undo me. And the goal is not about how many people in situations can we keep from coming near us? Like, oh, God, I don't want to see them tonight because I'm so peaceful. Oh, don't tell my mom I'm not home because I'm, you know, <laughs> I just, it, I don't want to ruin my peace. So we've got, got this ever-growing list of people and places and things that are kind of off-limits because they're going to rattle our peace. And the goal is not allow yourself to be splashed all over the place, but but how can I expand myself? How can I go from being the glass to being the ocean? So that, yeah, I can be in your presence. You may dump a rock in me, but see, it's not going not gonna to undo me. It's not going to cause me to splash all over the sides because, see, I'm the ocean now. And that's, that's really the goal. And just lastly, he teaches about how a yogi, is one who is always happy, always satisfied, santushta. And the, the Sanskrit of that is interesting because tushta also means happy and satisfied, but means it from little things. Temporary satisfactions, temporary happinesses. Momentarily I'm happy. But santushta is ever happy, ever satisfied. 
And so in order to have that, I need to connect with something that is much deeper than that in the outside world, which is making me happy right now. And that's what yoga does, is it literally connects us deep within so that we're able to have that. And he, he reminds us, interestingly, that a yogi is one who is peaceful and joyful, not swayed by passions. And the reason that I mention that is there's this, a, a very big kind of movement that if you're not living a life from passion, there's something wrong. Now, passion is great. Should you happen to be someone with a passion for something that's the driving force of your life that gets you out of bed in the morning and is helpful and healing for you and the world, and if you're really blessed, you also are able to make a living at it, God bless you. But what he says is, a yogi is one who's not swayed by that. Which means I'm rooted and grounded in peace. It doesn't mean I don't care. The yogis care deeply. If I'm deeply connected, I become the source of compassion. An ocean of compassion, literally. We sing, sing prayers to the gurus and the masters in which they're referred to as oceans of compassion. No one ever says oceans of apathy. Oceans of indifference, oceans of aloofness. So that disconnection does not mean I don't care. What it means is that I'm not swayed by it. I'm not blinded by it. And so in your practice, rather than worrying so much, about what is it that makes the fireworks go off in your life. Connect yourself with what is it that you can ground yourself to, anchor yourself to, that's constant. And that, that is this ocean. And that's, that's the practice of yoga. to go within. And then, of course, we become the most incredible doers of our duty. We become the most effective restorers of dharma. Because we're so anchored in the truth and our awareness of what our duty is that we can do it without being blinded. And that's ultimately what we're what we're all put here for.